0: Let's open with a word of prayer. We'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your word, your truth, and your church. Um, We pause just for a minute to sort of um, look back on what happened, 9-11, 2001, where 3,000 people were killed for doing nothing other than um, showing up to work. So um, I just pray that this would be a day of reflection, a day of mourning, and we also look forward, Father, to uh, our country, what you might have for us. I pray that you'll be with our country during this very um, difficult time. Your word teaches us to Intercede for those that are in positions of authority so that we might live a peaceable life so that the gospel might go forward unhindered. And so we do pray that for our nation today, particularly during this memorial time where we're looking backward to what happened on 9-11. And Father, you tell us to stay in fellowship with you. We recognize that unconfessed sin cannot alter our position with you, but it can break fellowship. And so we're going to take a few moments, Lord, to confess personal sins to you so that any broken fellowship might be restored. So that we can receive from your word today and your Holy Spirit today unhindered. We do thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us, what you've given us, and I do pray today for the illuminating ministry of your spirit, both in Sunday school and the main service that follows, so that we might leave here encouraged, fortified, edified, corrected if need be, and we just ask that your spirit would do that work today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen. All right, well, if you can take your Bibles and open to Psalm 83, <clears throat> Psalm 83, having completed our study on the Middle East meltdown, which is a verse by verse look. Of Ezekiel 36 through 39, we opened it up for questions for people to submit. And here's one of the questions that came in. And Lord willing, this will be the last um, question that we'll look at in this series before we start a new series. I'm hoping next week. But the question is what is your understanding of the first. Now, or next prophecies found in Elam, Damascus, and Psalm 83. And so there are so many um, people that were asking about this that we decided to devote a few weeks to explaining what's going on here with these so-called near, next or now prophecies. I've given you um, a number of times this quote by Charles Ryrie. Who says, eschatology seems to suffer at the hands of both its friends and its foes. Those who play it down usually avoid assigning specific meaning to prophetic texts. Those who play it up often assign too much. So we're dealing here with the, mostly with these now, next, or near prophecies, the friends of prophecy. People that love Bible prophecy. And yet, As I've tried to explain, they have a tendency in this near, next, or now prophecies movement to make these passages look prophetic when, in fact, they're not. So we've gone through the prophecies related to Elam, and I tried to show you that those prophecies have already been fulfilled. Yes, sir. Yeah, that creates a lot of... uh, Noise, so you might want to turn it to the lowest volume if if that's possible. And then from there we went to the prophecies related to Damascus. And I tried to show you that those prophecies have already been fulfilled. So these are not end time passages. The way the near, next, or now prophecies movement is promoting and the last one on the list, which we're going to try to cover today, is the so-called Psalm 83 war. So let's go ahead and read through Psalm 83. It's got about 19 verses in it, 18 verses, excuse me. It says, though God, this is, by the way, a Psalm of Asaph going back to 950 B.C., Asaph says, O God, do not remain quiet, do not remain silent, O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has joined with them, they have become a help to the children of Lot. And then you notice it says Selah, which means consider carefully. Verse 9, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon. Who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground, make their robes like Orab and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmuna, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like a whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. So, I have a chapter on this, a fairly short chapter in my book, The Middle East Meltdown, where I go into a little bit of detail here, trying to explain what is actually happening in Psalm 83. Because what people are doing in Psalm 83 is they're trying to convert this into an independent, prophecy about a war that's independent of Ezekiel 38 and 39. The logic of it, and probably the main guy that's promoting this, is a gentleman by the name of Bill Salas, who I agree with on a lot of things. But he's really pushed the envelope on this Psalm 83 issue. And when you listen to him talk and you read his books, basically what he's trying to say is, look, none of the nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are near the borders of Israel. They are all in the remote ring. So Turkey is removed from Israel. Iran is removed from Israel. Uh, Russia is removed from Israel. And so... When Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about a war or a prophecy about an invasion, it mentions nations in the outer ring, but it doesn't mention the nations in the near ring. So to get the full picture of this invasion, according to this conjecture, you have to consult Psalm 83, which basically is dealing with the nations um, adjacent to Israel. So names, and you can see them here on the chart, or the map names like Gebel, Tyre, Assyria, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Amalek, Philistia, the Ishmaelites, the Hagarines, and Salus identifies those with modern-day countries like Jordan and uh, Syria and Egypt and the Gaza Strip. And basically what he's saying is, because these nations aren't mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there must be another war in addition to the one described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So from there he comes up with this idea that, okay, first Israel is going to be attacked by the nations adjacent to Israel. And he sees this as a prophecy of Psalm 83, of that kind of a war. And through this, the nation of Israel is going to become overwhelmingly, will be overwhelmingly victorious. Israel's borders will actually expand at that point. And that will light the fuse, so to speak, which will inaugurate the Outer Rim invasion Spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So basically what's being done with this is this is being converted into its own independent war. And so if you believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 happens before the seven-year tribulation period, as many people do, then the Psalm 83 war happens even earlier. So any moment we're going to see the Psalm 83 war which they think is predicted in the Bible, and that's going to be followed by the Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine war. And then the seven year tribulation period will start. I mean that's basically the the scenario you know that they're developing. And so much of it comes from, look, the inner rim nations are mentioned in Ezekiel or excuse me, Psalm eighty three and the Outer Rim nations are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And so from that, they developed this scenario of a two-fold war, sometimes called the Psalm 83 war. So what I'd like to share with you are basically five reasons why Psalm 83 is not a prophecy about a war. Psalm 83 is not even a prophecy. Um, and beyond that, there's no war described in Psalm 83. Psalm 83 is Asaph, back in 950 B.C., mentioning in his prayer various nations that were bothering Israel back in 950 B.C. And he's, what's he's what he's doing is he's praying a prayer of imprecation And he's basically saying, Lord, I hope you take these countries out one day. He's not making a prediction about a war. He's not making a forecast about a war. He's praying a prayer of imprecation, which is kind of common in the Psalms, as I'll show you, where the psalmist mentions the nations that are bothering Israel and basically says, Lord, take them out. So it's like a prayer when you get mad at some something in the world. Lord, I'm I'm upset about you know abortion clinics. You know, Lord, and you mentioned the abortion clinic in your prayer. Lord, I hope you you'll deal with those people. You're not making a prediction that thus saith the Lord. In two days, the abortion clinic is going to be wiped out. It's basically what's called a prayer of imprecation, where you're praying with for God in His dealings, to eventually resolve an injustice. That's what's happening in Psalm 83. And that's basically what we would call the genre of the psalm. Genre is a French term which means species or kind. And it's a recognition that in the Bible there are different kinds of literature. Uh, you'll notice that the book of Romans doesn't read exactly like The book of Revelation. Why? Because Romans is a different genre than the Book of Revelation. Romans is what you call a epistle or letter. The book of Revelation is what you call prophetic, some call it apocalyptic. So you cannot approach Revelation exactly the way you do the book of Romans. And The Psalms in the book of Job and Proverbs don't read exactly like the book of Romans either, because that's a different genre or style of writing called Hebrew poetry. So part of being a good Bible reader is sort of developing some genre sensitivity, um, where you're looking at different texts in the Bible and you're basically saying, okay, This is a different genre, species, or kind of literature. So there's narrative, like we see in the book of Genesis. That's a genre. Uh, There's legal, like we see in the book of Exodus, towards the end. The book of Deuteronomy. The book of Leviticus. That particular genre is basically what you call more of a legal genre. There's poetry, like you see in the Psalms. There's epistle, like you see in the book of Romans. There's prophetic, like you see in the book of Ezekiel, like the book of Revelation. And so one of the things you figure out as you look at a text is what particular genre is this. And this does not fit the genre of predictive prophecy. This fits the genre of an imprecatory prayer. So let me um, very quickly, if I can, give you these five reasons why there is no Psalm 83 war. Because what people want to do is they want to get you into a debate about when the Psalm 83 war is. Is it pre-rapture? Is it post-rapture? Is it pre-70th week of Daniel? Is it in the 70th week of Daniel? And my answer is I don't have a position on the Psalm 83 war because Psalm 83 is not a prediction about a war. And that's kind of disappointing for people to learn because they're all sort of amped up looking at their newspapers every second to see when Ammon and Moab are going to invade the nation of Israel. Because these guys will sell out conferences and they'll really whip people up into a frenzy uh, trying to tell them that, look, any moment, you know, we're going to have this Psalm 83 war. That's going to be followed by the Gog Magog War. And that kind of stuff is exciting, it's tantalating, it will give you kind of the liver quiver of the day. Um, but at the end of the day, you look at Psalm 83 and you say, where are they getting this from? It's, it's Psalm 83, just like the Damascus prophecies, just like the Elam prophecies are not teaching what these more sensationalistic prophecy teachers are teaching. So, let me give you five reasons why Psalm 83 really is not a war. The first reason is the nations listed in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are non-exhaustive. So, the whole premise is you've got nations found in Psalm 83 which aren't found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You've got prophecies in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which are not found in Psalm 83. So there's an inner ring invasion, Psalm 83, then an outer ring invasion, Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's the premise of their argument. When the truth of the matter is when you go through Ezekiel 38 and 39, (coughs) Ezekiel 38 and 39 are non-exhaustive. So even if you want to take Psalm 83 and convert it into a war, which I don't advise you to do that, if anything, Psalm 83 would be fulfilled concurrently or simultaneously with Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you make this a war, there's no reason to make this a different war than Ezekiel 38 and 39. So let's just pretend it is a war. Do I have to make it an independent war, an earlier war, in comparison to Ezekiel 38 and 39, on the grounds that the nations in Ezekiel 38 and 39 aren't mentioned in Psalm 83? And the answer is no, because Ezekiel, when he lists the nations that will invade Israel in the last days, never claims that his list is complete or exhaustive. So some of these verses I've given to you before, but notice Ezekiel 38, verse 6, talking about the Ezekiel war, which is a true war. It says, Gomer with all its troops, Beth to Garma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, and many peoples with you. When Ezekiel says many peoples with you, right then and there, he's not arguing that His list of nations are exhaustive. Contrary to the premise of the Psalm 83 war. Notice, if you will, Ezekiel 38 verse 9. It says, you will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering in the land. You and your troops and many peoples with you. When Ezekiel says many peoples with you... There's a lot of other nations involved in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war that are not mentioned on Ezekiel's list. Ezekiel 38 verse 15. It says, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north and many peoples with you. All of them riding on horses, a great assembly, and a mighty army. Ezekiel 38 verse 22 with pestilence and with blood i will enter into judgment with him and i will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him torrential rain with hailstones fire and brimstones see how ezekiel keeps saying in many peoples with you he's opening the door that there could be a lot of other invaders that he doesn't mention on his list Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 4, it says, You will fall on the mountains of Israel and all your troops and all the peoples with you. I will give you as food to every predatory bird and beast of the field. So my first problem with this Psalm 83 war is let's just pretend this is a predictive prophecy about a war. Even if that premise is true, which I don't think it is, There's no need to convert this into an independent war on the grounds that the nations mentioned in Psalm 83 are different than the ones in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because Ezekiel 38 and 39, when he gives you a list of nations, he lists about nine, if I remember correctly. He is saying over and over again that his list of nations is not complete his list of nations is not exhaustive. So if you want to make this a Psalm 83 a war, what you can say is this is going to be fulfilled concurrently with Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's going to be fulfilled simultaneously with Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's going to be fulfilled at the exact same time as Ezekiel 38 and 39 Because Ezekiel doesn't claim that his list of nations that will invade Israel in the last days is exhaustive. So the first problem with the alleged Psalm 83 war is the nations listed in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are not exhaustive. And the premise that these folks that are promoting this are operating from is that there's going to be two wars because the list of nations is different. A second problem with this, and to me this is the most significant problem, is what is Psalm 83 at the end of the day? It is an imprecatory prayer and not a prophecy. Asaph is looking at all of the nations, he mentions many by name, that were harassers of Israel. In 950 BC, and he's praying in his prayer, Lord, I hope in the end that you'll take these people out. He is in no way, shape, or form uh, making a predictive prophecy of a war in which these nations will be destroyed. So Psalm 83 has the language of the genre of an imprecatory prayer. It does not have the language of a predictive prophecy. So, when you look at Ezekiel 38 and verse 10, it'll say this, and this is very common in prophecy. In fact, I was trying to put together yesterday Zechariah 14, which we'll be studying this Wednesday. And it keeps saying in those areas that are predictive prophecies, it'll say on that day. Ezekiel 38 verse 10 says, Thus says the Lord, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. You'll notice that Psalm 83, as far as I could tell, did not use the language on that day. Why is that? Because Psalm 83 is a different genre than Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is predictive prophecy. Psalm 83 is a prayer of uh, an imprecatory nature. Notice Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 14. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you know it? You'll notice that Ezekiel keeps using this expression, on that day. You don't find that in Psalm 83. If you go over to Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 11. And I'm just trying to show you that what people are doing, because they don't pay attention to these textual clues, is they're doing an apples and oranges mixture of verses together that don't go together to build a prophetic scenario. Ezekiel 39 verse 11 says, on that day, I will give Gog a burial there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by from the east of the Dead Sea, etc. So it keeps saying on that day in the book of Ezekiel, and it doesn't say that at all, as far as I can tell, in Psalm 83. When you look at Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 8, it actually gives a timing clue because it says after many days you will be summoned in the latter years. Identifying a specific time in history when the Gog Magog invasion will happen. Over in Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 16, it says you will come against my people Israel like a cloud To cover the land, it will come about in the last days, God says. That I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Notice Ezekiel says, latter years, last days. I mean, as we read through Psalm 83, those expressions aren't even used here. It doesn't say on that day, it doesn't say last days, it doesn't say latter years, which you would expect if Psalm 83 was, in fact, uh, some kind of predictive prophecy. Over in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, which is a great chapter of predictive prophecy, Many of the prophecies in that chapter happened 400 years later in real time. That's why liberals are upset about this and they want to pretend that Daniel couldn't have known that ahead of time. So they convert Daniel into someone that wasn't Daniel, who wrote 400 years after the time of Daniel, who's giving a history lesson. But that's not the conservative perspective. We believe Daniel actually had his prophecies concerning Daniel 11 400 years before they happen. And then by the time you get to about Daniel 11, I think verse 36, it will leap forward to the end times. So Daniel 11 is clearly predictive prophecy. It says in Daniel chapter 11 verse 40, at the time of the end. See the language there. The king of the south will collide with him, the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. Notice the definite expression, at the time of the end. There's nothing like that in Psalm 83. So why does Psalm 83 read so differently than a prophecy in Daniel in a prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Why does it read so differently without these expressions than prophecies in Zechariah 14? You know, the short answer to it is people are confusing genres. They're converting something that never was intended to be a prophecy into a prophecy. When the language of Psalm 83 is not prophetic at all. So why is there no Psalm 83 war? Number one, even if you make it a war, the nations listed in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are non-exhaustive. So you can turn this into a simultaneous war, I guess, if you wanted to do that. But number two, Psalm 83 does not contain the language of predictive prophecy. It's just a prayer of, of an imprecatory nature. Asaph You know, looks out at the nations that keep bothering Israel and he's just praying, Lord, in the end, I hope you sock it to him. Um, He's not making any kind of independent prediction. The third reason that Psalm 83 is not a war or a prediction about a war is as as we read Psalm 83, there, there is no war or battle found in Psalm 83. I mean, to me, that's problematic. Everybody's talking about the Psalm 83 war. I read through that. I didn't see any war. Did you? Now, what's interesting is when you read the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, there's a war there. Um, it talks very specifically about the the nations invading Israel in the last days. It talks... Um, very, very specifically about an invasion planned, an invasion executed, an invasion defeated. It talks about the results of that invasion. And we went through that section of Scripture very slowly, very methodically, verse by verse, I mean, all of that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And there there is no invasion planned in Psalm 83. There's no invasion executed. There's no invasion defeated. There's no results, you know, of the invasion. And Ezekiel gives you a ton of battle details. For example, Ezekiel talks about it's going to take seven months to bury the dead. And that's a very specific battle detail. So, for example, in Ezekiel 39, verse 11, it says, On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east of the sea. And then he talks about a traffic jam as a result of this giant burial that's happening. It will block the way of the travelers because Gog and his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. And then he describes how long it's going to take. He gives a number to bury the dead. He says in verse 12, Ezekiel 39, for seven months, the Israelites will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. And then when you drop down to Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 14 through 16, it says people will be continually employed in cleansing the land. They will spread out across the land. And along with others, they will bury any bodies that are lying on the ground. And then he says, after the seven months... I mean, that's very specific war type language. After seven months, they will carry out a more detailed search. As they go through the land, anyone who sees human bones will leave a marker. I mean, this is military language, isn't it? As they go through the land, anyone who sees a human bone will leave a marker beside it until the gravediggers bury it in the valley of Ham and Gog. Near a town called Hamanoah, and they will cleanse the land. I mean, notice the burial of bodies is spoken of. Where the bodies are going to be buried is spoken of in Ezekiel. The traffic jam that's going to ensue as a result of these this burial process is mentioned by Ezekiel. And then Ezekiel says it's going to take seven months to get the job done. Now, what about the weapons? What's going to happen to those? according to Ezekiel 39, verses 9 and 10. Those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them. And do you see any kind of language like this in Psalm 83? The small and the large shields, the bows and the arrows, the war clubs and the spears. And then Ezekiel predicts for seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forests because they will use weapons for fuel and they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them because the Lord uh, declares, rather, the sovereign Lord. So Ezekiel says, you know what? It's going to take seven months to bury the dead once the Gog-Magog war has run its... Complete to its completion. It's going to take seven years to burn the weapons. And I'm sorry, but when you read Psalm 83, you have absolutely, you have no description like that at all. It's just a generic prayer. It confuses people because Asaph in Psalm 83 does mention nations, but he's not making specific wartime predictions about nations, seven months, seven years, last days, latter years, on that day, that you find in other prophetic sections, you don't find that in Psalm 83. So when you see a bunch of lingo that typically occurs in prophecy absent from Psalm 83, that's your first clue that, oh my goodness, maybe people are abusing the genre of Psalm 83. Maybe they are taking something that the Holy Spirit allowed to be recorded as an imprecatory prayer and trying to sort of turn that into some kind of independent prophecy. The fourth reason why I don't think there is an independent Psalm 83 war is all of the nations mentioned in Psalm 83 were present in Asaph's day. In 950 B.C. So if you look at verse, we saw many groups mentioned. Um, The Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarites, Assyria. Um, When you back up and you look at the time period in which Asaph wrote this, It's obvious that he's talking about nations that he could see. Nations which had a mindset of hostility to the nation of Israel. And he's praying for God to bring justice and deal with those nations. So if that's true, why there's no need to convert this into some kind of end time phenomena. Because all of the nations that Asaph is talking about here were present when he was alive on the earth, all the way back in 950 B.C. The one that they contest is verse 7, where it mentions there Gebal and Ammon. And a lot of the Psalm 83 advocates will say, well, Gebal and Ammon didn't exist in Asaph's day. And I'm here to tell you that, yes, they did exist. There's a reference to Ammon in the time of David. When did David rule from 1051 to about 1011? Actually, that was the reign of Saul, 1050 to 51 to about 1011. Then David, 1011 to about 971. And then Solomon, about 971 to 931 BC. So we're going back to the 10th. And in some cases, 11th century. And over in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 10, verse 6, it mentions Ammon. It says, Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon set and hired the Arameans of Beth-Rohob uh, and the Arameans of zobah 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. Now, notice that it mentions David. When did David reign? Um ten eleven to about 971, 40 years. So, all the way back in the time of David, it mentions Ammon. Because what people are doing is they're trying to say, well, Ammon didn't exist in Asaph's day. This must be a futuristic prophecy. Not true. I mean your own Bible, the historical record that it gives, refutes that. Beyond that, Gebal existed in the Solomonic time period. You'll see a reference to it in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 18. It says, so Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gebelites. That's the group mentioned right there in verse 7 of Psalm 83. The Gebelites cut them and prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. So Gebal existed in the time of Asaph. Ammon existed in the time of Asaph. Every other single nation that's mentioned here existed in the time of Asaph. These are not end time players. These are nations that were a problem. They had historical animosity to the nation of Israel. And Asaph, as we can get sometimes in our prayer life, had just had enough of these people And he's basically saying, God, I hope you sock them in the face one day. Kick out their teeth. Um, Now, when he says that, is he saying, thus saith the Lord, in three years, their teeth are going to be kicked out. No, he's just having a bad day. And it kind of shows up in his imprecatory prayer. Um, And so that's all this is. It's not intended to be some sort of end time, two phase war prediction. Yet yeah, that's, what, that's what people want to hear. They want to hear this is some kind of end times prediction because it's exciting. I mean, do you think my book is going to sell like their books? I mean, who wants to buy a book on why Psalm 83 is really not a war, but an imprecatory prayer? I mean, boy, that's going to really go to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, right? But at some point in your ministry, you have to figure out what you're more interested in. Are you interested in selling books, or are you interested in giving an account to God as a teacher? When the book of James, chapter 3, verse 1, says, Let few of you presume to be teachers, knowing that the teacher must give a stricter accounting to God. That's what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about popularity, book sales, sensationalistic type speaking, etc. The final reason why I think Psalm 83 is not a war is because if you, and this is the, where the genre of sensitivity comes in, if you start taking things in the Bible that are designed to be imprecatory prayers and carte blanche converting them into prophecies, then that opens up Pandora's box. Because if you do it with this prayer, this imprecatory prayer, then there's a ton of other imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. And suddenly you've got to start converting those into prophecies also. Let me show you how common in the Psalter these these imprecatory prayers are. You see one example in Psalm chapter 6. And verse 10, and I'm just going to give you a verse or so out of each of these just so you can get the flavor of this, this genre, this species of literature that I'm talking about called imprecatory prayers. Psalm 6, verse 10, All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They will turn, they will turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Psalm 7 verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my enemies. And arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. I'm just tired of being pushed around, Lord. I hope you defend my case. I pray you'll defend my case. I'm tired of injustice. No one's going to take that as a prophecy. That is basically an imprecatory prayer. Psalm 25, verse two: "O oh God, in you I trust; do not let me be ashamed; do not let my enemies exalt over me." It was actually a song we used to sing when I was coming of age as a Christian in youth group. Let my and I won't sing it for you, but. Let not my enemies triumph over me. And we never understood that as, okay, within three weeks, our enemies are going to be dissolved. I mean, we just prayed that because we knew that in the end, God would bring justice, and it's like, Lord, speed it up from the human perspective in precatory prayers. Psalm 25, verse 19. Look upon my enemies, for they are many. And they hate me with violent hatred. Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Psalm 56, verse 2. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. You ever feel that way? For they are, there are many who proudly fight against me. Psalm 56 verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Thus I know that God is for me. Psalm 69 verse 18. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. Lord, I I want to be redeemed by you. I want to be protected by you. Not making a prediction that it's going to happen in some independent war other than Ezekiel 38 and 39. Psalm 102, verse 8. My enemies have approached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. So when you kind of look at these, um, what you see is the Psalter is filled with these imprecatory prayers. It's, it's just a little different with Asaph because he mentions specific nations. He's not giving a flash forward to an end time scenario. These are all nations that were harassing Israel back in 950 B.C. And he's just praying for divine justice. That's all he's doing. He's not giving an independent, precise, Prophecy. He's not saying latter years, last days, in that day, seven months to bury the dead, seven years to bury the weapons, burn the weapons, rather, etc. So if you're going to take Psalm 83 and you're going to make that a prophecy, then you've you've got to create independent wars for all of these. The Psalm 610 war. Psalm seven six four, Psalm twenty five two war, Psalm twenty five nineteen war, Psalm thirty one fifteen war, etc. 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 So there was a man named uh, Stanley Maghan who basically wrote um, a doctoral dissertation, which is it's wonderful to read. Uh, he did a very good job in it, being fair to everybody's view. And he has a section in there dealing with uh, people that are trying to convert Psalm 83 into an independent war. And this is actually him quoting Dr. Mark Hitchcock in this interview. And I think Dr. Mark Hitchcock has it correct. Mark Hitchcock says, quote, Psalm 83 is kind of like Psalm 2. It's just saying that there's similar language. Why did the nations rage against Israel in Psalm 83? It's just saying, look, there are people who are always against Israel. Israel is always going to have those enemies. They are always going to be against them, and God is going to deal with them someday. That's, That's what's happening in Psalm 2. That's what's happening in Psalm 83. God is going to deal with them someday. It's just when you have an imprecatory prayer, it's like, Lord, I'm at the end of my patience. I need you to speed things up. That's all these prayers of imprecation are doing. So these nations, Mark Hitchcock says, are always going to be against them. And God is going to deal with them someday. And then Mark Hitchcock says, we don't see a separate Psalm 2 war. So if Psalm 83 is going to be a war about a prophecy, then I've got to have a Psalm 2 war. If Psalm 83 war comes before the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, which happens, according to these folks, before the tribulation period starts, then I guess I'm going to have to have a Psalm 2 war, which precedes the Psalm 83 war, which will lead to the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. You see how crazy this gets? Which will then pave into the Great Tribulation. And that is an argument where I'm just trying to say if you don't respect genres of the Bible and you start converting things into prophecies, Pandora's box opens. And you have to have an independent prophetic war for all of these um, imprecatory prayers. So all of that in conclusion that the now prophecies... I think, are largely an abuse of biblical material. I'm not looking for an Elam War and a Damascus War and a Psalm 83 war. I am looking for the Gog-Magog War. And I'm not looking for it in the sense that I think I'm going to be here when the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39 happens Because I've tried to methodically explain in this series that the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war is confined to the outer edges of the tribulation period. So I'm not looking for an Elam prophecy to be fulfilled any second, a Damascus prophecy to be fulfilled any second, or a Psalm 83 war to be fulfilled any second. But I am looking for the shadow of the tribulation period. So, I stand about six foot six and a half, and because I'm tall, depending on the location of the sun or the light, you will see my shadow before you see me, right? When you see my shadow, you say, well, Andy Andy is about to enter the building, right? It's like Elvis, obviously. Elvis is in the building. That's me, right? Um... So you you see a shadow before you see the reality. That's how you understand Ezekiel 38 and 39. The shadow is being cast. The nations are in alignment. And then you say to yourself, wow, the tribulation period is rapidly approaching. In fact, um, on my way home from the airport, I was at a conference uh, this weekend. And on my way home in the shuttle that takes you from... The airport to the parking lot. There it is on the screen. We are converting the, organi- the the business that I use to shuttle me back and forth. Cash is no longer accepted. Uh, we are cash free, something like that. And uh, there it was on the screen as I was, I was uh, there. I was tired. I thought to myself, Is this a dream or is this real? And, of course, I pulled out my phone to get a picture of it. Everybody thought I was crazy taking a picture of a screen. And I'm fumbling around, and, of course, it it, flipped, it goes to another advertisement before I get my phone out. But So I wanted to get a picture of it, and then they let me out before they recycled everything. See, these are the trials and traumas that I go through. <laughs> but they are getting so bold with this cashless society. You know, but I say to myself, you know, the I see these things happening in the world like a cashless society that we're obviously moving into. You probably know about the CBDC, central bank digital currency, sometimes called Biden bucks, uh, that they're, you know, they want to push us into this cashless system which in my mind is one of the reasons that they're allowing us to experience all of this crazy inflation right now and high gas prices. So we'll call out to the government to save us. And, you know, their answer is going to be, uh, you know, a cashless system. So my point is I see these signs. I don't look at them as we're in the tribulation, but they're certainly casting their shadow. Then I said to myself, well, you know, the rapture comes before the tribulation, so the rapture can't be far away. And that motivates my life in the present. That's what I do with Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's how to look at it. Not through the lens of any second it's going to happen, along with these other alleged prophecies, but... The shadow is being cast. We're rightful dividers of the word of God. Jesus is coming back. Ready or not. And so it ought to motivate our lives in the present. That's why God gave us Ezekiel 38 and 39 to study. I don't have to make it beyond that to fit it into some scenario that I'm trying to hype beyond what the biblical facts dictate. Can I get an amen on that? So that takes us to the end of our Middle East meltdown study. And I'm glad that we got through the study before the Middle East melted down. I had my doubts. So beginning next week, I wanted to keep the focus on prophecy. I was going to take you through the two Thessalonian letters, if that's okay with you. And so I would encourage you to read uh, First Thessalonians um, chapter 1 uh, in preparation for next time. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for today and your, your word, your truth. It's a light unto our path. Light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path in these difficult days. Help us not to be confused about what your word actually says and doesn't say. But help this study not to be just data in the mind, but impacting our priorities and how we live in the present. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And as you're going out, take a picture of the clock, like I tried to take a picture of the slide in the bus there, because we're getting out two minutes early. (laughs) Happy intermission.